Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Good morning and uh, greetings all of you. Especially want to take this time to welcome those who are uh, joining us from one of our regionals, are watching us uh, live online. You know, in the summer months when people are away or traveling, this is a, a wonderful opportunity through our live broadcast to be able to still connect with us in worship. So we're glad we are able to do that. Uh, when I was in school in India, there was uh, a lot of emphasis on uh, learning by rote. So we had to memorize an awful lot of things, sometimes entire textbooks. One thing I hated memorizing was definitions. And I could write uh, long answers, five pages long easily, but when it comes to that uh, crisp summary of what something means, struggled with that. I guess that's why my sermons are long as well. And I get into trouble for going over time. Once I was invited to preach in a Romanian church, they told me the longer the sermon, the better. So if you're a Romanian, you'll be happy you came to church today. I don't know about the rest of you. There is a word that we very commonly use in our churches, but sometimes we may struggle to define it. It's the word gospel. What is the gospel? I believe that is such a crucial question in a post-Christian West. You know, the word gospel has been hijacked by everyone. I did a quick search of books that have been published in the last few years that uh, associate themselves with the gospel, and I was surprised to find out that the gospel is not just a, a Christian vocabulary anymore. Everybody uses the word gospel. So we have the gospel according to Starbucks. Life is hard enough with coffee. What would life be without coffee? The gospel according to The Simpsons, based on a popular TV show. The gospel according to Earth, advocating for a green Earth. The gospel according to Harry Potter. The gospel according to Star Wars, faith, hope, and the force. The gospel according to Oprah, and the author of the book says, Oprah is a compelling spiritual teacher in a spiritually eclectic and ever-practical America. And a Hollywood reporter says, Oprah has used the power of television to preach the gospel of self-esteem and betterment, and she's more effective than all the televangelists combined. We even have the gospel according to Dr. Seuss and gospel according to Disney to satisfy our young kids. Wow. Has there been a generation like ours that is so desperate for an experience, so longing for the good news, and yet so disillusioned and so confused that we can't even distinguish what the good news really means? Have we become so twisted in our thinking that what Oprah says sounds like gospel to us? Sadly, that's the case with the majority of the culture around us. People don't find the true gospel to be attractive, so they find counterfeit gospels. They search for the good news everywhere except the Bible. And in the myriad of so-called gospels that are all around us, there is one gospel that really matters that our world desperately needs. It's the gospel according to Jesus. Last week, uh, we looked at the incarnation of Jesus, how he walked in the downward road. And I challenge you that the gospel needs to put on flesh and come alive in order to be relevant to our generation. So to continue where I left, for the gospel to put on flesh, we first need to be able to answer the question, what is the gospel according to Jesus? We have a great passage that we will be studying today from Luke chapter 4 verses 16 to 21. I'm going to ask all of us to stand up as we read the scripture portion for the morning. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, 
And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus, we come before you recognizing that you are the anointed one. And just as you were present in that synagogue 2,000 years ago, you are very much present in our midst today. And we long to hear your voice as you expound your gospel, your mission, the reason for your coming into this world. We pray, O Lord, that you would be able to fulfill your mission even today in our midst. That you would speak to us and we would leave this place transformed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus grew up in a small, insignificant town called Nazareth. Told you last week that Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. So for 30 years, Jesus faithfully attended the synagogue service week after week. And now Jesus had launched his public ministry and he receives the invitation to come to his own hometown synagogue and to address the people. So he's speaking to a very familiar audience. Many have called this passage as the Nazareth Manifesto. So Jesus declares in a nutshell what his ministry is all about. He is defining his mission and the purpose for his coming into the world. Let me say this at the outset. This passage has been interpreted differently according to our church traditions. So each of the church traditions throughout history has picked on one aspect of the gospel and emphasized on it. So some speak about the social side of the gospel, that it's about fighting oppressive regimes and ministering to the sick and the poor. Some have highlighted the ministry of deliverance, that the gospel is about setting people free from captivity and about signs and wonders. Evangelical churches like ours emphasize on the forgiveness that Jesus brings and the spiritual freedom that the gospel offers us. But the gospel according to Jesus is a holistic gospel that includes all of these elements. We often talk about soul winning But Jesus is interested not just in the soul of a person, he's interested in our whole being. We're going to start from the end of the passage that we read, and we're going to work our way up, because it helps with the flow of the passage. And my prayer is that as we come to the end of the sermon, we will have a deeper and a fuller comprehension of what is the gospel according to Jesus. So here in verses 20 and 21, says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was not very diplomatic. Someone said, A diplomat is a person who tells you to go to hell and tells it in such a way that you actually look forward to the trip. Jesus was far from being diplomatic. He's given this scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and Jesus deliberately opens up chapter 61 and reads the first two verses. And then as he goes and sat down, the eyes of everybody is fastened on Jesus. They were riveted to him. What is the local preacher going to say about this fascinating text? There was pin drop silence, and everybody is looking in one direction, at Jesus. And people would have thought 
that Jesus would come and say, look at this glorious picture of the age to come, and when the Messiah arrives, all of these things are going to happen. Because that's what any good rabbi would say. But that's not Jesus' message. He looks at them right in the eye, and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus is dropping a bombshell in that congregation. They are shaken up by these words. Jesus is telling them that he is God's long-anticipated salvation to the whole world. That through this kid who comes up from this insignificant family, God's promise of deliverance and freedom and hope and peace, all of these things are going to be culminated in this person, Jesus. That was too big, too big of a claim. Now, what prophetic fulfillment is Jesus talking about here? We find that in verse 19, it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the prophetic fulfillment that Jesus is talking about. In fact, the central point of this passage and all of Jesus' mission is the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor mentioned in Isaiah 61 references back to Leviticus 25, where we find the year of Jubilee. We got to understand the year of Jubilee in order to wrap your mind around Jesus' mission and the gospel that he's bringing to the people. So Leviticus 25 outlines that uh, the seventh day is a day of Sabbath. People have to cease from work and rest on that day. And Leviticus 25 goes on to say the seventh year is the sabbatical year. So one year out of every seven years, there will be no sowing and reaping in the land. And people all rest from work. And then you come to verses 10 to 13 in Leviticus 25. You find reference to the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended wines. For it is a jubilee, and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. You can go on to read more verses in Leviticus 25 to get a full picture of what the Jubilee is. But basically, every 50th year was declared as the year of Jubilee. And on this year, debts were forgiven, prisoners and slaves were set free, and land returned back to the original owners. Jubilee is a radical concept. Imagine if you're mounted with credit card debts and have declared yourself to be bankrupt, and all of a sudden they're saying that your debts have been canceled and you're given a fresh new start. Would that be good news worth celebrating? It's worth bringing the roof down. It is awesome news. It is extraordinary. It is amazing. See, debt was so tragic in those days. You would never be able to break free from debt. Poverty is so vicious. So the only way out was the year of Jubilee. So once in a lifetime, everybody got this opportunity to make a fresh new start, to make up for their mistakes. So joy, celebration, rejoicing, dancing, shalom, all of these words are associated with Jubilee. But tragically, we never see in the history of Israel this year of Jubilee being put into practice. This wonderful gift of God was never applied throughout the history of his people. And Isaiah picks up on this very theme of Jubilee and he prophesies about the messianic rule. 
So during Isaiah's time, the people of Judah had returned back from captivity in Babylon after 70 long years of misery and sorrow. And now it was time to rebuild the land, to rebuild the ruins. And things weren't going very well. The people were facing conflicts and disputes and were very discouraged. They felt that God had completely abandoned them. So they put ashes on their head and sackcloth and there was moaning all over the land. And Isaiah comes to his people and he says, God is sending the anointed one, the Messiah. He will deliver. When he comes, he will save. He will bring spiritual and social transformation. The Messiah will give you beauty for ashes, a garment of praise instead of a garment of despair. And more importantly, Isaiah is saying, when the Messiah comes, the year of Jubilee will be inaugurated. This year that has never happened throughout the history of the people of God is finally going to happen when the Messiah arrives. And Jesus, 800 years later, standing in front of his hometown synagogue, says the Jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favor, is here. I am the anointed one, and I come to you with good news. Wow! Can you grasp the immensity of this? As we understand the whole background and backdrop to this passage, then it comes alive. Jesus is making a huge promise. We call Jesus as Jesus Christ. Christ is not his family name. His parents were not Mr. and Mrs. Christ. Christ is his title, which simply means the anointed one. So as the anointed one on whom the Spirit of God rests, he is the one who inaugurates the Jubilee. And the Jubilee in Leviticus is just a foreshadow, a faint depiction of what the kingdom of God that's going to come in the person of Jesus Christ is going to accomplish. Because real lasting joy, gladness, celebration, and shalom comes when the kingdom of God arrives here on earth. So we see the effects of Jubilee all through Jesus' ministry, and we see the effects of Jubilee today as the church, as God's anointed instruments, go and accomplish Christ's mission. Starting with liberation for the oppressed. So verse 19, Jesus says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word oppressed is a reference to people who are crushed in spirit, shattered by the hard experiences of life. We don't understand the reason, but life is unfair. And the truth is, some people experience tough lives, one blow after another, resulting in excruciating pain and broken hearts. I believe more people die today because of broken hearts than heart attacks. And Jesus came to bind the brokenhearted to embrace them with his unconditional love, to put his arms of love around them and keep them close to his heart and bring healing. The ancient world of Jesus' time was a world of hierarchy. It's similar to the caste system in India or the class system in the old Western world. So the society was seen like a ladder and people occupied different positions in the ladder, starting from the top to the very least. The oppressed were the ones who had bought the most in that ladder. And the society had these despised classes that nobody cared about. They were bruised and broken, crushed and humiliated and treated like dirt. But Jesus, as he launches his ministry, almost makes this despised group as his focus group. He reaches out to the lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners. He reached out to the oppressed people who, who went through such horrid times. If you're a leper during those days, life can be 
extremely painful. Leprosy is a horrible disease. A person who's diagnosed with leprosy basically loses their sense of pain. So they become numb to pain to the point a leper can dip his hand in boiling water and not feel anything. I've seen a number of lepers in India. So basically, as a result of that, losing the sense of pain, they get injured often, and they don't even know about it, and they lose their fingers and toes. And during Jesus' time, these lepers were considered as the despised people. The rabbinic law says that you cannot come within six feet distance to a leper because you would get defiled. The lepers were never allowed to come into the temple for worship. Nobody spoke any meaningful words of love or affirmation to the lepers. At the most, they will throw a coin at their face. If a rabbi were to stumble across a leper, the leper would be castigated for coming so close to somebody as holy as a rabbi. And even as a leper would walk across the street, he has to scream, unclean, unclean, and people will all make way so that he would be able to walk through. And Jesus broke all of the social norms of his time when he reached out and touched the lepers. For the very first time in their life, they received a meaningful, affirming touch. The Pharisees believed that if they touched the lepers, they would become defiled. And when Jesus touched the lepers, he did not become defiled. They became clean. And in that's how Jesus operated his ministry of touch, reaching out to the despised and oppressed people. Isn't that radical, a heart of compassion to the least? Jesus restored their dignity and made them equal as children of God. If you've had a hard life, you are blessed because you're close to Jesus' heart. Several times in the Gospels, we see Jesus being moved with compassion. And the word that is used is to express how a mother feels for the child growing in her womb. So if you're, if you're pregnant or have been pregnant, you understand those feelings. And that is how God feels towards the oppressed. And Jesus does not give us a Valium tablet or a painkiller. He suffers with the sufferer. He deeply identifies with their pain. He touches our deepest wounds with his nail-pierced hands and brings healing. There are a lot of oppressed, wounded people around us today, and their only hope is the gospel. It's a category of uh, people in India called the Dalits, who don't even fit into the caste system and therefore considered as outcasts, untouchables, so nobody would have any meaningful interactions with them. A few years ago, about five young Dalit men were lynched and burnt. And the crime that they had committed was uh, to skin a dead cow. And after this horrific incident took place, uh, a, a leader of a Hindu political party quotes this in the media, and he says, the life of a cow is more valuable than the life of these Dalit young men. And yet we have a gospel where God lets his son be skinned alive, so to speak, to show that he cares for the least. We find in Isaiah, Isaiah says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He knew what it means to be sorrowful. But are we as Christ's followers well acquainted with grief. A spiritual discipline that I've been following consistently now is to read the newspaper. Is that a spiritual discipline? Never saw it that way, but over a period of time I realized that it greatly contributed to my spiritual growth and my understanding of God's compassion. I intentionally look for stories that are painful heartbreaking, 
stories of rape and murder and terrorist acts and, and all kinds of atrocities that are happening in the world around us. Just the other day, I was reading about how 20 drunk men went into a, a Christian hostel run by a Christian school and dragged four innocent girls between 12 to 14 years and raped them mercilessly for two hours. 20 men on four young girls. It's not right. And when you read stories like these, it's painful. And there were times I told God, God, I don't want to read these stories because they mess me up. You've given me such a sensitive heart. After reading these stories, I can't go to bed. I'm having a sleepless night. After reading these stories, I feel so disturbed, so emotionally uncomfortable. I would rather pretend that everything is nice with our world and live in this bubble and not worry about what is happening around me. And I felt the Lord whispering to me and saying, I want you to read these stories because I want you to weep and agonize with me over a broken world. We cannot be detached from our world of pain and live in a bubble. If we want to be healing instruments in God's hands, it starts by deeply identifying with pain around us. It means entering into a world of pain just as Jesus did and living there and letting it wreck us completely. And then perhaps God can use us as his healing instruments. Today, spirituality seems to be popular because of the new age. But if a form of spirituality were to put the individual at the center, and it's all about our well-being, our wellness, it's about us living this stress-free, happy life, then that spirituality is fundamentally flawed because it fails to address the problems of a needy world. And the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't give us that convenient option. The gospel liberates the oppressed, brings life and hope to them. It's part of the gospel according to Jesus, the ministry to the oppressed. Then Jesus talks about freedom for captives. That's the next imagery in his speech. And it is a, a powerful, powerful imagery. Setting the captives free and opening the blind eyes. Herein you see the ministry of deliverance coming into play. So Luke 4.18, Jesus is saying, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Every person born in this planet is in bondage to sin and therefore held under captivity by the devil. Whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, that's the way it is. There are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. One belongs to Satan and the other belongs to God and we belong to either of these two kingdoms. There is no middle ground. You're either the property of God or the property of the devil. And at every conversion, there is a transfer that takes place from one side to another. And that is why even when one sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven because this person has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And Jesus' primary purpose of coming was to overcome the enemy. We find this in 1 John 3, 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The word destroyed there means to break down, to undo, or to render ineffective. So Jesus came into this world to render Satan ineffective. Satan repeatedly hindered Jesus' ministry. So even in this passage here in Nazareth, just prior to that, you would see that Jesus was 
tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And Luke 4.13 says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus overcame the enemy in the wilderness, unlike Israel that gave into temptation in the wilderness. But the devil kept coming back at Jesus all throughout his ministry, waiting for that opportune time. And Jesus resisted the devil. In fact, every act of healing that he performed, opening of blind eyes, enabling the lame to walk, cleansing the lepers, all of this and the exorcisms that he performed were repeated blows on Satan's kingdom. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the evidence that the kingdom has come. Every time somebody is being released and set free and delivered, the king has come and he's showing his sovereignty and power. And the greatest and the most powerful decisive act of victory over Satan happened at the cross. The cross was a symbol of defeat in the ancient world. Jesus, being forsaken by his followers and apparently feeling forsaken by God, is nailed to this cross and is powerless. And it appeared that the evil had successfully defeated the good, while it was the opposite that was true. The cross conquered Satan and his kingdom decisively, and Jesus is presented as the victor. We find this powerful passage of Scripture, Colossians 2.15. says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So in the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan and the principalities and all powers and triumphed over them and made a public spectacle of them. You know how victory was celebrated during those times? The victorious Roman general would parade his defeated enemies in the streets of Rome. The captives would be stripped of their ornaments, their dress, their arms, and made to walk naked in the streets and bow before the conquering king. And this is the image Colossians 2 is using to portray the defeat of Satan. That means that Satan does not have ultimate power over us as Christians. It is true that the enemy is cunning and deceptive and works in deceptive ways. We don't want to undermine that. But we are never told in the scripture to be afraid of the devil. We are called to be alert, to be careful of the devil's schemes, but never run away from the devil. In fact, the Bible says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The enemy has been defeated, and Jesus is victorious. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the question is, do you believe that Satan has been defeated, or are you letting him hold you in bondage. Satan keeps us in bondage through fear and anxiety over sinful habits and addictions, over compulsive behaviors, memories of childhood abuse. It's time that we take stands on the victory that Jesus has already won on the cross and reassert our authority in Christ. It's time for the captives to be set free. Praise God. And the third message that Jesus is bringing as part of the gospel is the message of forgiveness to all who acknowledge their need for God. So he begins with these words in Luke 4.18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. 
When I was a new Christian in India, the first time I started attending church, our church had two different worship services. One was a, an English language worship service, and the other was the, the local language Tamil worship service. The English worship service had uh, the educated uh, people who are well-off, sophisticated, elite people in the society come for this experience. And the other one, the Tamil one, was for the people who were ordinary, poor, a number of them living below poverty line. They were the primary target group. So the English worship service would start like any other service. People would sing, a sermon will be given, offering is taken, everybody goes home. Nothing really spectacular happens. Then within half an hour, the other worship service starts, the Tamil worship service. The poor, the broken ones, the ones living below poverty line start coming to that service. And in a small place, there's about 300 people seated, a number of them sitting on the floor. And you feel as the worship service begins, there's almost a high velocity power that is flowing in that place. And people are lifting their hands and they're worshiping God. And when they're worshiping God, they're giving their everything in worship. And then it's time for them to pray. And you hear these people pray. And they pray such desperate prayers because God is their only hope, their only resort. And then comes the time for testimonies. Testimonies for people to stand up and share what Jesus had done in their life through that week. And you know without a shadow of a doubt, unmistakably, that the risen Jesus Christ is very much alive in that place. And isn't that how church services should be every week? Isn't that how church should be everywhere? When people who come here would know the risen Jesus dwells in our midst. And yet the poor are the ones who recognize that because the heart experiences of life have softened them spiritually and they are alive for God. You hear about church growth in the third world and why churches are declining in North America. A lot of research is going into that. But Philip Yancey put it in very simple words when he said, God goes where he is wanted. But the gospel is not just for the poor. It is for everyone who admits their need for God. So Matthew 5, 3, the message translation says, you are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. It's only as we understand the bankruptcy of our souls, our desperation and our need for God, our sense of dependency on Him, that we can actually confess the greatness of Christ and the power of the gospel. We may have this perception that we are well off. We are fine. We have a house. We got insurance. We got a good job. We got savings. All of these securities of life. But how does God perceive of us? We find this in the book of Revelation. Jesus says these words to the church in Laodicea. The church in Laodicea was a wealthy church, a church that was doing extremely well materially. But it was also a lukewarm church. And Jesus says these words. These are scorching words. Revelation 3, 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Piercing words from Jesus. The strongest of all rebuke you would find in the New Testament for the lukewarm church in Laodicea. The church had abundance of wealth overflowing with material riches. And they were saying, we got the good life. Life is easy. Everything is going well. We will coast on, plan on an early retirement, plan for long holidays. Can it get any better than this? But what they didn't realize where they were spiritually insensitive. They lacked faith. They were indifferent and idle in their zeal for God. And that's the last thing Jesus had in mind for his bride. 
And Jesus says to them, you think you got everything? You are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, God sees things very differently from the world. Their spiritual state was the exact opposite of their material wellness. And there are several churches like that today. And Jesus has the very same scorching words for those churches. Don't let a, settle for a half-hearted Christian life because it is a, a wasted life. But as we confess our poverty and acknowledge our dependence on God, as we open our heart to Jesus, He comes in and He makes us rich. He makes us truly rich. Today, we want Jesus to bring a social transformation, a social revolution, especially popular among our, our younger people. They want to gravitate to the poor and reach out to the needy. We want to see a medical revolution where the sick will be taken care of. We want to see a political revolution where oppressive regimes will be overthrown. And let me tell you, the gospel has the power to do all of that. But it starts with a spiritual revolution when Jesus would give us a new heart, a new motivation, and then out of that heart flows all of these transformations. And that is why we cannot do just compassion ministries. We got to present the full gospel of healing and deliverance and forgiveness of sins along with addressing the injustices of the world. And when we preach this holistic gospel, we, like Jesus, are announcing to the world, this is the year of jubilee. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year for people to be set free, for captives to be released. This is the year when the good news will be preached to the poor. The year of jubilee has come. But in order to preach that message, we need to be captivated by the wonder of the gospel. The problem is some of us have gone weary. We have lost that sense of wonder. Our conversions happened long, long time ago and they remain a faint memory. And what we need is to reclaim the wonder and awe and the majesty of the gospel of Christ. And I close with this story. It will tie in with everything that I've said today. The Auschwitz concentration camp became the killing center during World War II, where the largest number of European Jews were murdered by the Nazis. In order to discourage escapes, Auschwitz had a rule that if one man escaped, 10 men will be killed in retaliation. In July 1941, they thought that a man had escaped from the concentration camp. And ironically, he had actually drowned and died. The commander-in-chief of the camp shouted, the fugitive has not been found. You will all pay for this. 10 of you will be locked in the starvation bunker without food or water until you die. The prisoners trembled in terror. They randomly started calling out numbers of prisoners, and they stepped forward to be punished, to be taken away to this bunker, never to be seen again. And as this number was being called out, a man cried out in anguish, my poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? And when he uttered this cry of dismay, a priest who was a, a fellow prisoner too, named Maximilian Colby, stepped silently forward, took his cap off, and he stood before the German commander and he said, I'm a Catholic priest from Poland. I would like to take his place because he has a wife and children. The commander remained 
silent for a moment, pondered over this, and surprisingly, he granted the request. The young man was spared, and this old priest took his place and died. And reflecting on this incident, the young man wrote these words. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? I was put back into my place without having had time to say anything to Maximilian Colby. I was saved, and I owe to him the fact that I could tell you all this. The news quickly spread all around the camp. It was the first and last time such an incident happened in the whole history of Auschwitz. The young man went on to live another 50 years and died at the age of 95. And he never forgot the one who took his place, the one who sacrificed his life. And every year for the next five decades, he went back to Auschwitz to pay homage to this person who took his place. Now, what about you and me? If we indeed fully grasp what Jesus Christ has done for us, then each of us can actually truly say these words. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? The only difference here is it's not a stranger who offered his life. It's a God who loves us unconditionally, who's been pursuing us all along, even times when we had turned our backs away from him. It is this God who came into our life, who took our place of punishment. And every blessing that we have today, our freedom, the healing that we have received, the shalom, the peace, and the joy, and the purpose that we have in life flows from the cross. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of jubilee. This is the year for captives to be set free. This is the year for forgiveness to be proclaimed. This is the year of joy and celebration and gratitude. And this sermon is not about doing. It's an exhortation primarily for you to receive to receive all of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. And there are some of us here, sitting here, and we have lost the wonder of the gospel. And we've settled into this routine of coming to church on a Sunday and living for ourselves the rest of the week. We no longer have that joy of salvation. We no longer have that vibrant faith that we once possessed. When was the last time you contemplated about your salvation in Christ and it brought tears in your eyes? If it was a long time ago, something is not right. Maybe, maybe you lost that wonder. And what you need is that sense of wonder to return back, to be filled once again with gratitude and amazement for what Jesus has done for you. I'm going to ask all of us to stand up. This is a time for us to respond to God. You know, the Bible says Jesus does not snuff out a smoldering wick. When the flame is dim, when it is just flickering, Jesus doesn't extinguish the fire. He doesn't douse the flame. He rather rekindles it. He fans the flame once again. And I believe that is exactly what he wants to do in some hearts today. To fan into flame once again. 
the awe and wonder of the gospel. I'm going to ask us to do something. I told you the sermon is not about doing. It's about receiving. It's an exhortation to receive all of the benefits of the gospel. So I'm going to ask you to stretch with your hands like this in a posture of reception. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to once again touch you with the fullness of the gospel. Because there's some of you who need deliverance. Deliverance from a sinful habit, an addiction that is destroying your life. You know that. There's some of you who need a fresh, new touch from God. That the tears will once again come back in your eyes as you think about what Jesus has done for you. So I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to now come and minister to each of you that the Spirit of the living God would fall afresh on us as we maintain a moment of silence. to move freely in our midst right now. That people will be set free today, oh Lord. That the trumpet will be sounded. There will be rejoicing and celebration in this place because deliverance has come. Because people's lives are being transformed. Lord, we want to praise you for what you're doing right now. May you continue to do your work in us that we will be a church that is pleasing to you, that we would receive from you today all of the blessings, all of the benefits of the gospel of Christ. And would you send us, oh God, filled with your presence, with our bondages broken, that we would be instruments in your hand to impact the world around us. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of our Heavenly Father and the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide and comfort each and every one of us both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.